0: Well, everyone likes winning. I think that's fair to say. Everyone likes winning. It's part, in fact, of the human DNA. Human beings just like winning. In fact, there are some scientists who have suggested to us that there are certain chemical reactions in the brain that create happy sensations when we come out on top. Everyone likes to win. The the, the, the bus ride home, back to the school, is better after you've achieved a victory over your rivals. The car ride home from the soccer match is livelier, and the conversation is easier after a win. The mood in the school and the office is lighter And the days just go better after victory. Everyone, beloved, everyone likes to win. In sports, in business, in school, in politics, in love, and in marriage, the goal for the vast majority of us is the one that was made famous by the late NFL owner, Al Davis. Just win, baby. Just win. Winning is not just a priority for most, it is the motivation. That's why the song became so popular. All I do is win, 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 no matter what. Why was Elijah on Mount Carmel? Why had he returned to Israel? Why had he openly met with Ahab and called out the prophets of Baal? Elijah was seeking a win, wasn't he? He was seeking a win. And on the surface, beloved, if you understand this to be the case, you would not be wrong. Elijah didn't go up to Mount Carmel to lose. But I want to suggest to you this morning that it wasn't just about winning. This was not just a contest between Elijah and Ahab. This was not just a contest between Elijah and the prophets of Baal. This wasn't just about winning. This was about God. And it wasn't a contest to see if my God is better than your God. And it wasn't simply a contest to see that my God can beat your God. No, beloved, I don't want us to trivialize this event, this account, and make it about some schoolyard quarrel or some ridiculous gang fight. In such instances, whether the school war or a quarrel or, or the gang fight on the street, the only thing that matters is winning. But here, beloved, we are reminded that winning only matters when God gets the glory. It was Vince Lombardi who said, winning isn't everything, it's the only thing. And beloved, I want to suggest to you this morning, don't get me wrong, winning is good. Winning is important. As Coach Herm Edwards once said, we play to win the game. But winning is not the ultimate goal the glory of God is. What the Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31, whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. That was why Elijah was on Mount Carmel. That is why he called for the people to join him. He wasn't there just to win. He was there to bring glory to God. That's why he called for the 450 prophets of Baal. That's why he let them have home field advantage. That's why he gave them all the time in the world that they needed to call upon Baal. It wasn't just about winning. Listen, when we understand the why Elijah did it, then we better understand the what of Elijah did. What did Elijah do? Elijah went to Carmel. Not for Elijah, and not just for win. He went to Carmel for the glory and honor of God. And for the glory and honor of God, Elijah did two things that help explain the why. That's what we want to look at this morning. Not so much the details of the incident, but the why. The why of it. Because it's in the why that we understand the what. And explain the why. We're going to see two things. And he exposed the enemy and he won a victory for the glory and the honor of God. He exposed the enemy. The glory of God. Uh, for the glory of God, Elijah exposed the enemy for what and who the enemy is. This is so important, beloved, because by doing so, what Elijah has done, what God has done through the ministry of Elijah is he has reminded us of the nature of our enemy as well. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 11, right, that our enemy must not outwit us. That our enemy must not outwit us. And that we must not be ignorant of his schemes or designs. Elijah wasn't. He wasn't ignorant of his enemy. The enemy was not going to outwit him. He was not ignorant of his schemes or his designs. God don't want us to be ignorant either, beloved. First thing Elijah exposes and reminds us is that the enemy is many. The enemy is many. Verse 22, then Elijah said to them, I am the only one of the Lord's prophets left, but Baal has 450 prophets on that mountain that day. There were 450 prophets of Baal, and Elijah stood alone. Not to mention the other 400 prophets of Asherah that were also present. Elijah stood alone. The odds were clearly against Elijah, and not only was he in hostile territory, but he was also greatly outnumbered. Because the enemy is many. And this is how it always seems to be, beloved. Doesn't it? If there is a common theme in the scriptures, it is that God's people seem to always be outnumbered. The faithful are always outnumbered. Gideon only had three hundred soldiers as he faced the mighty Midianite army of well over a hundred thousand. David was but a small shepherd boy with stones as he stood against the great giant Goliath and the Philistine army. Jehoshaphat's army was nothing compared to the army, the combined forces of the Moabites and the Ammonites. Even Jesus, beloved, even Jesus, when he went into the land of the demoniac, he came face to face with a legion of demons. God's forces are more often than not outnumbered, because this is a tactic and the scheme of the enemy. Satan loves to bring overwhelming numbers. This is one of his tactics of intimidation, beloved In the world, bigger is better. Large companies swallow up small companies. Big churches overshadow small churches. When I was a kid, when I was a kid, we had to play basketball on the court. We had to play basketball early in the day. And the reason you had to play basketball early in the day is because when the big kids showed up, they pushed us the smaller kids off the court. That's what big kids do. They intimidate. And when I became one of those big kids, what did I do? I let the little ones play with us. You know, I always welcome them to play with us, Brandon. I let them come, not. What the enemy does, beloved, the enemy wants to intimidate. The enemy wants to convince you that your little is not enough. That your little prayer is not enough. That your little service is not enough. That your small gifts are not enough. But here is Elijah standing alone against the mighty numbered prophets of Baal and reminding us what God says in Zechariah 4 and verse 10, don't despise the day of small things. God delights to take the little and make much. Satan wants to intimidate us into fear. He wants to intimidate us into doubt. He wants to intimidate us into despair. He wants us to get into the, into our feelings and get us to thinking that we are all alone. But beloved, Elijah might have been one, but Elijah was not alone. No, no, beloved. No, no, no. There's Martin Luther who said, of whom shall I be afraid? One with God is a majority. Ecclesiastes 9 and 11 reminds us that the race is not to the swift, nor the fight to the strong, beloved. The enemy is many, but many don't make Right. As the psalmist says in Psalm 20 and 7 some have horses and some have chariots, but we have the name of the Lord our God. And that's Elijah on Mount Carmel. He stood alone, but he stood with God. The enemy might be many you know what also the enemy is? The enemy is busy. The enemy is busy. If he can't intimidate with signs, then he'll intimidate with activity. That's what he does. If he can't intimidate you with signs, he intimidates with activity. And as you can see in our text this morning, the enemy got busy. They prepared their sacrifice, and they gathered all their forces. And they labored, the Bible says, they labored. They labored morning, all morning to noon. And then after lunch, they turned up the volume and cried out even more. Chapter 18 and verse 28 and 29 said, So they shouted louder. All this activity is going on. They're trying to intimidate Elijah. That's what they're doing. They're That's what the enemy does. Elijah's all by himself. Make a lot of noise. Got a lot of forces. Get busy with activities, so they shout it louder and slash themselves with swords and spears, as was their custom, until, until the blood flowed. And then midday passed, the Bible says, And they continued their frantic prophesying until the time for the evening sacrifice. They were busy and active with loud, boisterous, intimidating activities from morning until evening on that mountain. That's how the enemy does. He is busy, intimidating, always is, often loud, often loud, beloved, standing on street corners, shouting lies and accusations. What he does is loud, often organized and desperate. You know what the Pharisees did against Jesus, beloved? The Pharisees riled up Herod. They riled up Pilate. And then they riled up the crowd. in the evening that our lord was crucified do you know how loud it was in jerusalem they were shouting crucify him crucify him and every turn the bible says that every turn luke 23 and verse 21, at every turn when Pilate was seeking to let Jesus go, the crowd just got louder and louder. Crucify him, crucify him. Until you see in Luke 23 and 23, and their shouts prevailed. Their loudness and their busyness. And their shouts and the volume went out. That's what they thought was going to happen on Mount Carmel. They thought their busyness, they thought through their busyness they would succeed. They thought by volume, Baal would prevail. But listen, beloved, busyness does not mean best. And loud does not make right. Loud does not make right. Beloved, the devil is loud. So the Bible says in 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 8. He is a roaring lion. A roaring lion. At the zoo, when the lion roars, it is heard throughout the whole complex. And it can be intimidating to the other animals, except for those who know that the lion is caged and he ain't going nowhere. He just roaring. And beloved, the devil thrives in noise a noise as a distraction from the truth. He's loud. He's brash. He's full of drama. He's shouting down the truth like he's on first take undisputed or something. Numbers is not a signal of truth. Volume is not a signal of truth either. And I don't care how loud they get. And they get loud. They're loud in this world. And they shout. And you know what, beloved? You say wrong is right, and right is wrong, loud enough and often enough, you begin to believe it. That was the case on Mount Carmel. They thought if they get loud enough, they thought if they say it often enough, then it would be true, and Baal would answer. Because that's what Satan does. He gets loud. But the problem is that he can get louder. He can get as louder as he wants. Elijah reminds us that that enemy who is busy, and that enemy who is many, and that enemy who is loud, is the same enemy who is weak. He is weak for all of his numbers and for all of his noise. The enemy is weak and powerless in the presence of God. The enemy is all bark and no bite. All bark and no bite. Notice what it says in verse 26 of 18. And then they called on the name of Baal from morning till noon. Baal, answer us. They shout it. With loud voices, Baal, answer us. Notice what the Bible says. But there was no response. No one answered. In verse 29, midday passed, and they continued their frantic prophesying until the time of the evening sacrifice. But notice what again it says. But there was no response. No one answered. No one paid attention. You know why no one answered, beloved? There was no answer because there is no one. There was no answer because there is no one other than Jehovah God. Baal is not God. Baal is not A thing. He is nothing. There is only one God, Isaiah chapter 45 and 5 reminds us. There is only one God, and that God is the Lord. Baal is powerless. Baal is a no thing. Satan is powerless, like the lions in the den with Daniel. Nothing. Nothing. The devil is toothless. His bark is loud, but he can't bite. He has been defamed. Like a viper whose poison has been drained. Like a scorpion whose sting has been removed. That's Baal and Mount Carmel. That's Satan at the cross. Bible tells us, beloved, that. Colossians chapter 2, beginning in verse 13, when you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive in Christ. He forgave us all our sins, all our sins, having canceled the charge of Of our legal indebtedness which stood against us and condemned us, he has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And not only did he nail our sins to the cross, not only has he taken our indebtedness away, not only has he forgiven all of our sins, but then also, beloved, the Bible says that he disarmed the powers And the authorities and made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them on the cross. He didn't just take away our sins. He didn't just remove our debt. The Bible says that he disarmed the enemy. He took away any power and authority they thought they might had, and he made a public spectacle of them. That's Elijah. Omar Carmel. That's Christ at the cross for all of his activities. For all of their imaginations, for all of their shouting, for all of their dancing, for all of their prancing about. In the end, the enemy is defeated because the enemy is powerless. He is sound and fury signifying nothing. And because of this, because of this, Elijah. Was assured of victory. Don't miss that. Elijah goes up to the mountain knowing he's gonna win. You know why? Because he knows Baal is nothing, he knows he's nothing. But it's not just about winning. It's about showing the glory and the honor of God. For victory is guaranteed, beloved. Here's the point. Victory is guaranteed because victory is not ours. Victory is the Lord's. Victory is the Lord's. In Chronicles chapter 20 and verse 15, the Bible reminds us that the battle is not ours. The battle is the Lord's. But not only is the battle the Lord's, beloved, if the battle is the Lord's, then also the victory is the Lord's. And remember, winning is good when it brings God glory. And so the victory was not simply in defeating Baal. Baal was nothing. Baal was nothing. The victory was not simply in defeating Baal. The victory was in God's people returning to God. The victory was not just taking down Baal. The victory was getting God's people to see who really God is again. So that's why, that's why, that's why Elijah, that's why Elijah prayed in, in verse thirty-seven of chapter th- in chapter eighteen. He says, "Answer me, O Lord, answer me, so that this people will know that you, the Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back again." That is the goal. That is the victory. That God's people will return to God again. That is the glory of God. It is not in defeat of nothing. It is returning God's people's heart to God. And what did it look like when God's people turned back to God? Well, the worship was renewed. Notice what it says in chapter 18, verses 30 through 32. Then Elijah said to all the people, come here to me. They came to him, and you know what they saw? They saw Elijah repairing the altar of the Lord. They saw him building again what had been torn down. Mount Carmel had become a place of idolatry, beloved. But now, once again, it would be a place for the worship of the true and living God. Elijah rebuilt the altar told the people to come near to him and watch him as he rebuilt the altar in the name of the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He rebuilt the altars because he was reviving worship. Renewed and revived worship is a sign of victory. That's what victory looks like. When God turns lives around, beloved, listen, this is what victory looks like. When God turns lives around and he takes the old and makes it new. When he takes what was lost and regains it again. When he restores what has been neglected. As he says in Joel chapter 2, verse 25, that God is able to restore and renew the years wasted. That's what he does. That's what he does. The loudness and the volume of Satan would have you to believe that wasted years are just wasted years. And that your wasted years means that now you have a wasted life. Nothing could be farther from the truth, beloved. Many of us have wasted years. Yes. Yes, beloved. But that's okay. That's okay because you can still return to worship. It is never, it is never, it is never too late to return to worship. It is never too late to renew your worship. It is never too late to rebuild altars. Listen to me this morning. The kingdom of God is a perpetual renovation project. It's what it is. It's what God is doing every day, all day. He is renovating the houses. He is renovating homes. He is renovating hearts. Everyone, beloved. Everyone. Do you hear me? Every one is a remodel. I don't care how good you think you look. You have been a renovation. You have been a a rebuild. You have been a restoration. The grace and mercy of God. Is that he takes the old and makes it new. He takes the sick and makes it well. He takes the broken and makes them whole. This is the victory. That is the victory, beloved. Forget Baal. We're rebuilding this altar, people. We're renewing worship on this mountain. Baal is nothing. That's the victory, beloved. The victory is in 1 Peter chapter 2 when you realize that it is the stone that the builders rejected that has become the chief cornerstone. That's the victory. And do you know? Do you know? We're going to rush on, Pastor Phil. But do you know, beloved, That worship is always a sign of the enemy's defeat? Always is. Always is. His design is to either get us to to worship falsely or to get us to worship not at all. God's people... Worshiping in the name of Jesus is a reminder to Satan every Sunday that Satan is defeated. Doesn't matter how you got here, doesn't matter how you look, doesn't matter how you sound. The fact that you are here, that's victory. That's a victory, beloved. And every Lord's day, we are together in worship, we proclaim our Lord's victory. Victory over sin, victory over death, victory over Satan. And it doesn't matter. No matter what has happened in your life this week, no matter how difficult the trial, no matter how strong the temptation, every time you enter into the house of God, you are saying victory is mine. Victory is mine. Victory today is mine. I told Satan, get thee behind. Victory today is mine. Doesn't matter. Hate about Baal. We We rebuilding this altar for the glory of God. That's how he won the victory. He renewed worship. But he didn't just renew worship. He restored God's name. Notice what Elijah said at the onset of the contest. Chapter 18, verse 24. You call upon the name of your God, and I will call upon the name of the Lord here's the issue. Not only had they violated the first commandment by having other gods before God, they had violated the third commandment and that they had taken the name of the Lord in vain. Baal had been called God on Mount Carmel. Or worse, God had been called Baal on Mount Carmel. And his name had been dishonored. And beloved, there is nothing more precious to the Lord our God than is his name. Psalm 138 and 2 reminds us, That his name is more precious to him than even his word. His name is precious because God is his name. His name is his reputation. His name is his renown. His name is his promises. Everything God's people have is because God is true to his name. He's true to his name. In Genesis chapter 12 and verse 8, the Bible says to worship is to call upon the name of God. That's what worship is. is to call upon the name of God. In Romans chapter 10 and verse 12, we are told that we are saved by what? Calling upon the name of our God. Call upon the name of God. That is worship. Call upon the name of God. That is what it means to be saved. We call upon the name of God in prayer. We call upon the name of God in praise. We call upon the name of God in thanksgiving. We call upon the name of God when we're in trouble. Proverbs chapter 18 and verse 10 tells us that the name of the Lord is a fortified tower. The righteous run into it and they are safe, safe, safe. Because his name is our hiding place. And on Mount Carmel, Elijah was not only restoring the worship, but he was also restoring the name. The name is not Baal. The name is Jehovah. Oh, beloved, but there's an even sweeter name than that. For the name is not just Jehovah. The name is Jesus. Our lives, the Bible tells us in Colossians chapter 3 and verse 3, our lives are secure and hidden from the enemy by God. Where? In Christ. In Christ Jesus, in the name. Whenever you hear in the Bible that the Bible talks about us being in Christ, it means that we are in him, his name, the name Jesus. We are in him. Now, the Bible says in Romans chapter 8 and verse 1, there is now no condemnation for those who are where? In Christ, hidden in Christ, hidden in the name of Jesus, because there is no better name. There is no sweeter name. There is no greater name than the name of Jesus. That's why we say there's power in the name. That's why we say there's victory in the name. That's why we understand that there's hope and there's help. There is strength in the name because there is no greater name, no greater name I know. In the name of Jesus. And that's why the people rose up and said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. The Lord Jehovah, he is God. And every week we come to worship Beloved, we proclaim that Jesus is Lord. No greater name I know. He restored the worship. He restored the name. Last and not least, beloved, he removed the enemy. Now, I wasn't going to make this point, but I think it's very important that we understood this. That not only is the victory that the worship was renewed, and that the name restored. But the enemy was removed. In verse 40, then Elijah commanded them, seize the prophets of Baal. Don't let anyone get away. And they seized them And Elijah had them brought down to the Kishon Valley and slaughtered there. Elijah had all the prophets of Baal killed. Now, it seems a bit excessive, doesn't it? To our modern ears and sensibilities. May appear cruel and unnecessary. You already won, Elijah. You don't need to be shedding blood. You already got the people to say who the Lord our God is. Well, beloved, what we have here is a very important reminder to us this morning that we need to remember. For this reminded them and it should remind us not only are we saved but you need to be reminded of what you're saved from. We are saved by God, from the righteous wrath of God. I know it's nice and easy to say that we're saved from our sins, and that is true, beloved. But the reason we are so rejoicing and so glad to be saved from our sin is because the sin would bring down the wrath of God upon us. We are saved by God, from God. Saved by God, from the condemnation for our sins, yes. Saved from eternal death, yes. Saved from the penalty of our sin, by the grace and mercy of God, through Jesus Christ, our Lord and our champion, beloved. Listen, listen. The prophets of Baal were not the only sinners on that mountain. The prophets of Baal were not the only idolaters on that mountain. Don't you and I get it twisted, beloved. Don't get it twisted. You're not Elijah. You're all those other people standing on that mountain. And yet, here again is the mercy of God. And that not willing for any of his people to perish, but for all of them to come to repentance. This is the mercy of God. This is the patience of God. This is the long-suffering of God. And thus, in this judgment of God against sin is the grace of the invitation. It always is. It always is, beloved. Always is. God's judgment is never without the invitation of grace. Never, 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 never. Before the judgment, God always pleased with his people. Come to the winning side. Always. Before judgment comes, he always pleased. Come, come, let us reason together. Though your sins be a scarlet, we can make them white as snow. You just come, 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 come. Come without money, come without price. You just come freely. Come, come, Jesus says, unto me all who are labor and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. You just come. Because judgment is coming. But before the judgment comes, God always is gracious in inviting his people to the winning side. When all the people saw this, when all the people saw this, The Bible says in verse 39, they fell prostrate and cried, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. They heard the invitation. They heard the mercy and the grace of God that was there on the mountain before the judgment fell. It always is, beloved. An invitation is always come, come, come be forgiven. Come, be revived. Come, come, come to the winning side. Come. God's judgment is coming against all unrighteousness, beloved. It came on Mount Carmel. It's coming upon the world. And there really is going to be no contest. Because all God does is win. God is going to win. Because all God does is win. Because all enemies are nothing. And the question for you and the question for me is the same question that Elijah posed to the people of Israel on Mark Carmel. It is the question from all eternity. It is the question now. It is always going to be the question, Whose side are you leaning on? I'm leaning on the Lord's side. Whose side are you leaning on? I'm leaning on the Lord's side. I lean, I lean, I lean, I lean. I'm leaning on the Lord's side. And on that side. There's mercy, there's grace, there's forgiveness, there's the restoration of soul, there's the renewing of mind, there's the forgiveness of sin, there's hope, because on that side you are safe, because on that side you win. For the glory of God and for the good of his people. Whose side are you leaning on? Are you leaning on the Lord's side?